So we're going through the letter to uh, the Corinthians. And um, yeah, if you guys have any questions, have any uh, thoughts, please feel free to share them. You can stop me at any time. Um, feel free. And uh, if you have any disagreements, feel free to stop me as well. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a, it's not a long book, but it's, it's got quite a lot of material. It's got a, a lot of things that we could spend a lot of time on, uh, but we don't have that much time. So it's going to be quite a high level, but we're going to touch on as much things as we can. And then if you have any questions, if we reach eight o'clock and uh, you can stay, then you can always stay behind and then um, we can talk it out. And I think my screen is a little blurry, so let me wipe this. Okay, that looks better. Okay, cool. So, 1 Corinthians, right? For our age, there probably aren't more relevant books uh, than 1 and 2 Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians. Many of the problems experienced by the church in our time today were experienced by the church in Corinth. So, their situation is one that is very similar to ours, right? So, contextually, what is happening? Well... Um, sorry. So contextually, we find ourselves in the city of Corinth in Greece. And Corinth is a port city. So Corinth is where ships carrying cargo or people would load and unload. And it's along a coast. So ships would sometimes take refuge from storms at the harbor in Corinth. What happens when you have a whole lot of men who've been on the waters for a long time, for months on end, they arrive at a city for a few days, you tend to get all types of immorality, right? You get drunkenness, sexual immorality, violence, etc. So Corinth was characterized by that kind of immorality. But there was also great wealth in that city. It was a wealthy city because it is a port city. So there's lots of trade going on, right? International trade, maybe. Ships are coming and going from all over the world. Business is flourishing. And Corinth was the capital of that region in Greece. It's an economic hub. There were also lots of temples. So you had temples being built to the Greek gods like Poseidon. So who was Poseidon? He was the Greek god of the sea. Uh, there's even a movie called Poseidon about a sinking ship at sea. You might have seen it or heard about it, right? So Poseidon would have been an important god to the people in Corinth because their lives and livelihood are centered around the seas. So they'd offer sacrifices to Poseidon for good fortune and to be protected from bad, bad weather on the waters. There were, there were actually many, many temples to idols, but there, there's like three main ones. It was Poseidon and the other one, the other main one was called Aphrodite, right? I think the other name is Venus, but Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sex. That was one of the, that was one of the well-known things about Corinth was their sexual looseness the sexual looseness of that society it was very sexually immoral it even became a term to corinthianize so corinthianize became a word for fornication that is how much sexual immorality there was in that city it became notorious for that a corinthian girl was another word for a prostitute so this is some of some information to give you an idea of the background of the type of society that the corinthians were in in many ways, it's similar to our society, right? We live in a, a Western civilization. We have a society that idolizes self-image and love 
and sex and money and possessions. We may not have temples built up for these things. You know, we don't go to Aphrodite, but we have the sex industry and pornography. That is a billion dollar industry. That, that is worship of sex. And there were also a lot of cults. Some, uh, even some Egyptian religions were practiced at the time. There was worship of the emperor himself. There was all sorts of things going on when it came to idolatry and worshiping of false gods. As part of this, uh, as part of this false worship, a lot of these false gods um, and, and the systems and, and the actual uh, uh, practices, you'd have things like ecstatic speech, right? It's part of many religions like Buddhism, witch doctors, going into some sort of a trance and then having ecstatic speech. It was part of this worship as well with like Aphrodite. Sometimes they would get together, the people would get together and they would get drunk. They would pursue outer body experiences like when you let your mind go and you start to dance and, uh, and then the ecstatic speech comes, right? It was all part of pagan worship. This all came along with temple prostitutes. So there was such a thing as a temple prostitute, especially when it came to Aphrodite. Uh, Aphrodite, the temple to Aphrodite had staff. It was staffed by a thousand sacred prostitutes, right? They call them sacred prostitutes. So imagine you live in that city and you were brought up in it. It's a very wicked place to grow up in, right? Sexual immorality is rife and it's normalized. Drunkenness is accepted, greed, licentiousness. And then around the year 50 AD, the Apostle Paul comes along to Corinth by the time of Paul's arrival, there was that the city of Corinth was like five times bigger than Athens. You know, it was it was huge. It had grown, and it was the capital of that province. And then he moved in with Aquila and Priscilla. These are names you read about in uh, in Acts and in Romans. He starts preaching to the Jews in the synagogue. The Jews kick him out, but the leader of the Jews in that synagogue, his name is Sosthenes. He gets saved, and then the Jews turn on him. Because now he's following Christ and he, gets, and he gets beaten up as well. So you can read about that in the book of Acts. I think it's in chapter 18 or 19. Sosthenes gets, not, gets kicked out, but he goes and he preaches the gospel. And many people believe and the church in Corinth grows. Now the believers there have grown up in a terrible environment. It's not as though you, grow up, you, you, you grew up in a Christian home with morality and good ethics and manners and an understanding of the Bible You've been saved out of a completely pagan situation and now you are part of the church. And we all know, sadly, that sanctification is a frustratingly slow process. So when you come into the church, you don't just come in perfection, right? You don't come in the finished product. You bring your baggage with. You bring your culture into the church. It was, a, it was true of the Corinthians and it's true even now. People are saved out of a culture but the culture is not completely removed from the people. And so sometimes, uh, more often times than not, you will see the fingerprints of the culture in the church. That is why when you read this letter, there are very serious things going on. There's bad things happening. They are still stuck in their worldly ways and their thinking, right? And yet they are still the children of God. They are still a church. And so Paul writes to deal with them. So that is a setting. Right. That is the context. Uh, any questions so far? I hope that makes sense. Okay. So how many letters to the Corinthians are there? If you've been to Heritage, 
any time in the past three months, you would know to, the answer to this, right? There are four letters to the Corinthians, but we only have two of them in our Bibles. Paul had written a letter to Corinth, to the church, and then they responded. So he'll, he'll even say in chapter, say, uh, chapter 7, uh, he'll say, concerning the letter that you wrote to me. And then he responds to that letter. The response to that letter is what we're going through tonight. So really, 1 Corinthians is 2 Corinthians. This, this is a response letter, which is why when you read it, you'll see Paul constantly saying, now concerning this thing, now concerning this thing. It's because that's what they asked, right? They were asking about these things. They were saying that this is, uh, probably saying this is how they view things. This is how they did things, right? That's why it can be tricky reading this because it can be hard to see where Paul is quoting what they said, right? Or when it is just him saying something. So, for example, the statement, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. That part of all things are lawful is probably what the church was saying. And now Paul is replying to them. So he quotes them and he says, yes, all things are lawful, but not all things are good. So he's quoting what they said, right? Um, you, yes, you do, you do have freedom now, but Paul has to teach them about that subject and give them the, a, a, a more godly uh, understanding, give them godly wisdom concerning it. So really to understand this letter, we have to read the whole book, the whole flow of the book, right? Within the whole flow of the Bible as well to make sure our interpretation is correct. They had asked about food offered to idols. They had asked about um, about sex, about virginity, about marriage. Are these important issues to us today? Definitely. Right? These are things that we still inquire about today. In our times, we still deal with these things. In Second Corinthians, he speaks about the severe letter. Right. That's the wet one. That's also uh, uh, the 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 letter that we don't have, and he addresses things in it. So the severe letter is the third letter to the Corinthians. And then what we have as Second Corinthians in our Bibles is actually the fourth letter to the Corinthians. Okay, I hope that makes sense. So if you turn to, if you have your Bibles and you turn to chapter 1. So he says, chapter 1 verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. So we're looking at the book being written in AD 55 around 20 years after the crucifixion of Christ. And Paul is greeting Sosthenes, right? The former ruler of the Jewish synagogue, uh, who was the leader of the Jews until the Lord saved him. And uh, he got beaten up for his faith, but here he's with Paul. So it's, it's a beautiful testimony. And in verse two, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I was to say to you, there was a church somewhere in town uh, where they were getting drunk at communion, they were dividing over who is their favorite preacher, there was factions. Uh, and so, so for example, if, if they found out one guy's preaching and not the other, some wouldn't come to church, right? And they, they even have some someone in the church who is sleeping with his mother-in-law and they're proud of it, right? They're proud of their liberal love in this case. So uh, there's even those who are doubting the resurrection. You'd question, right? You'd question if that is a church. But what is Paul saying in this greeting? He says to the church in, Cor in Corinth, right? So it is a church. It is a church, but it's got big problems. This church makes a huge deal out of the spiritual gifts, right? Tongues, miracles, healings. 
drawing attention to themselves and they think the kingdom has already come and that they are ruling and reigning, they, they're chasing prosperity, etc., etc. And yet Paul says they are a church. So it's quite an amazing thing. Then he says in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you will call into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul will tend to start his letters like this. This passage is kind of like a prayer, right? He's thanking God. I thank you, God, that you have given them grace. I thank you, God, for this and this. And in his epistles, when he does that, when Paul does this, many of the themes, the main things that he will deal with are actually bound up in that prayer. So read this prayer and you will see that, uh, you, will see, you will see it. And the incredible thing about Corinthians is that Paul will use a lot of sarcasm and irony. Paul is sneaky like that, but he's clever. Right? He uses psychological means to get people to understand and to drive home his point or even to challenge them. Right? He, says, he says to the Corinthians in the prayer that in verse 4, I give thanks to my God always that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge. But is that true of the Corinthians? Were they full of knowledge? They actually had big problems with knowledge. They lacked a lot of knowledge. But then Paul says, so you were not lacking in any spiritual gift. But they were very lacking and had problems with the spiritual gifts. So I hope you see, uh, firstly, the themes coming out, right? And Paul already addressing them in a sneaky way. And so when you read this book, it's important to see where Paul uses sarcasm and irony. Otherwise, you will read this and you'll come away thinking that he was affirming something as positive when it was really negative. So when he deals with spiritual gifts, uh, he's not, right? He's not affirming them. When he says to them, you are rich, you are rulers, I wish that we could rule like you. When you read that, it has to be sarcasm because otherwise you'll read that and say, you see, we are rich. God's people should be rich and they rule. But he's clearly not saying that. He's just mocking them a little bit. He's saying, if you are rich and reigning, then we as apostles must be the scum of the earth. But carry on. I'm glad you guys are rich and ruling, right? So, as I said, we won't be able to go through a lot of this book. We're just going to touch on a few more, few of the more relevant things for us. And to do that, um, we're going to use a statement by a guy named David Schuler, right? He said this about the Corinthians. He said, they were those who had an over-realized, eschatological, pneumatically enthusiastic, over-sacramentalized wisdom, right? That's, that's English for everyone. So I'm just going to say that one more time. There were those who had an over-realized, eschatological, pneumatically enthusiastic, enthusiastic, over-sacramentalized over wisdom. So what does that mean? So over-realized eschatology. What does eschatology mean? It's the study of the end times. What then is realized eschatology? When we say the kingdom of God has come, it means that we are at the end. That is what the Bible says. It says, in the fullness of time, Christ was born. In the fullness of time. So the world ended when Christ came. What we are living in now is the last days. Right? We are living in borrowed time. It's like in soccer, the game has ended at 90 minutes, but now we are in additional stoppage time. The kingdom has come, but not in its fullness. 
the things that will be fully realized when Christ returns are only partially realized now. So the aspects of the kingdom that are here uh, already we call realized, right? That is what we call realized eschatology. So when you say over-realized eschatology, you are taking things that are still to come when Christ comes a second time and you're putting them back to now. So you are saying uh, the things that will happen when Christ returns, they're already, they've already happened. When people say that, when people say that you shouldn't be sick, right? If you say because you're a Christian, you shouldn't be sick. Is that biblical? It's not. But is it true in the new heavens and earth? It is, right? But if you pull it back to now, then it is over-realized. It is not true. If you say, should we all be rich? Will Christians be rich? Well, we will inherit the earth, right? Will there no longer be poverty in the new heavens and the new earth? Yes. But if you say those things are true now, then it is over-realized. Ultimately, it will be true, but it is not true now. And that is what's going on in the church in Corinth. They are saying those things. They're saying we are ruling and reigning now, right? And even when it comes to the topic of the resurrection, the Corinthians, they're not denying the resurrection of Christ. Chapter 15 is all about the resurrection. They don't deny it. They say that it has already happened. They say Christ has resurrected and so the kingdom has come. They think that the here and now is the full reality of the kingdom of God, right? That is what over-realized means. Again, that is popular in the church today, right? Those types of teaching, uh, especially dominion theology, if you've heard of that, that's in, the, in, that's in the charismatic movement especially. They say nobody should be sick. We are the children of God. You shouldn't suffer. You should be rich. You should be the CEO. You should be driving this car, living in this house, right? That is what the Corinthians were doing as well. So the next part of that statement is what pneumatically enthusiastic. So pneumatically, um, in systematic theology, you have different areas of study when you study the Bible, when you study theology, and they use these big Latin words to name the topic. That is just how it's always been. That is a convention. If you study God, what is that called? It's called theology, right? Theo means God and logia means words. It means utterings or sayings. So theology literally means sayings about God. If you study the doctrine of salvation, what is that called? It's called soteriology. Uh, the word soteria means salvation. If you study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what is that called? It's called pneumatology. So pneuma means breath or spirit, right? So like when they talk about pneumonia, they call it pneumonia because it's a disease of the lungs, of, the, of what gives you breath. So when... This David Schuller guy says the Corinthians were pneumatically enthusiastic. He's referring to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how the Corinthians were obsessed with him. This is in chapters 12 to 14 where it deals with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how they were chasing after these gifts. But if, but if they even have the right gift, they were not using it right. You know, it may have been that they were still incorporating the use of ecstatic speech from the cults around them. So they were mixing their former pagan rituals and Paul rebukes them for the improper use of the gifts. For example, they were all speaking in tongues together in the church. That is completely unbiblical. The Bible is very clear about that. We should not be doing that. If you are speaking tongues, then there should be someone to, there should be, there must be an interpretation, right? That is one aspect of it. Never mind that uh, there isn't even a case for the tongues here in Corinthians being different from the ones we saw in the book of Acts. Remember, in Acts, the tongues were real 
actual languages, not gibberish. You cannot say that the Bible suggests in any shape or form that the tongues in Corinth are not real languages, right? So tongues should always be real languages. But we look at this in more detail when we get to those chapters. And then another part of that statement is over-sacramentalized. So David Schuler says, the Corinthians had an overly sacramentalized um, wisdom, right? What are the, sacram the, the sacraments? There's only two sacraments we observe. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. And that is also a big thing in Corinthians. Chapters 10 and 11 give us the biggest teachings on the Lord's Supper. It seems that the Corinthians thought um, that because we are baptized and we have the Lord's Supper, then we are okay. We are good. We are right with God. And Paul will make the point that they are making baptism a huge deal. They were making too much of it. So in chapter 10, he will say, remember the Jews that they also had sacraments. The Jews also had sacraments, but in a different form. Before Christ, before Christ came, the Jews also had uh, sacraments that they observed. They, they were also baptized into Moses. They also had a form of communion, right? They were fed and they drank from the rock. And the rock was Christ. And um, even though they, they all drank from the rock, did all the Jews go to heaven? Paul says no, because many of them uh, God was not pleased with and so he killed them. So what he's arguing for is that uh, just because you get baptized and you partake in communion, that doesn't mean you're going to heaven, right? Doesn't mean you are saved. Just because you take the sacraments does not mean that you are good. It is those who live a holy life and show that the holy and have the Holy Spirit that are changed and grow to have love and grow to have to show the fruits of the Spirit. That is what Paul then speaks about in chapter 13. That is the more important thing, right? To love one another. So, um, and then he will say that, Paul will say that knowledge puffs up, right? But love builds. And people will say, you hear this a lot being reformed in your, th in your theology that, yeah, you Calvinist, you Reformed Baptist, you are all about knowledge and big words and just Bible, 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 right? Firstly, to ever think that Paul is against knowledge or the study of doctrine is ridiculous. That is the last thing you can say about the guy who wrote Romans, right? The guy who wrote Romans would not say, let us just be stupid and ignorant and just love one another. It's all about love. He's not saying that. In any case, the moment you try to define what love is and what love looks like, what are you going, where are you going to go for that? You're going to look in your Bible, right? I hope you will. The moment you, you open your Bible, you are doing theology. I'm sorry to break it to you. Love is a doctrine. People will criticize and say, it is all about simplicity in Christ. You just have to love people, right? You can't divide over doctrine and uh, these things and he believes that and she believes that. That sounds nice. Sounds very nice and spiritual. But if you truly love people, you have to tell them the truth, right? And that is what Paul does. He loves enough to tell the truth, but the truth is found in God's word. So that is, that is being over-sacramentalized, putting too much confidence in the sacraments. And you can say that about the Catholic Church today, isn't it? Some Catholics say, if you have communion on your deathbed, then it's okay. You'll be saved. And you've seen movies about the mafia. They go and they kill a whole village of women and children. And then they go to church, bow down in front of a statue of Mary and have communion. And that's supposed to make everything all right, apparently. Right. But that is just not biblical. So um, are there any questions that is supposed to give the big picture of the church in Corinth?
Okay. So, sorry, going back to chapter one. He starts off dealing with divisions and the church is fighting over their favorite preachers. Some say they follow Peter. Some say they follow Paul. The very spiritual, they say they follow Christ. So there are all these factions. And it's amazing to see how Paul brings everything to Christ. He will he'll be talking about division in the church. And then he will say, like in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, is Christ divided? He brings us to Christ and he does that throughout his writings. Whenever he talks about money, he brings it to Christ. When he talks about marriage, he brings it to Christ. It's all about Christ. And then he talks about the wisdom and the power of God. So remember in the Greek Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, wisdom and knowledge were very important things. They were the things to obtain. The Greek philosophers came from this area. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. So all of that philosophy and that thinking, uh, that so-called wisdom and knowledge, the Corinthians come out of that culture and they bring it into the church. All of us, me and you, we need to have our minds renewed. We need our worldview to change. We all, as we congregate online, we all have things wrong with our thinking. We all have our blind spots that we are not even aware of because they are so culturally normal and acceptable. They are so ingrained in us. It's part of the air we breathe. It's like we can't escape it. But God's word is to shape us and to shape our thinking. And that will happen if we are teachable and if we spend time in his word and learn and study. Then slowly but surely our thinking will be changed. Later on, he will talk about food offered to idols. And the Corinthians know their theology. They know that there's only one true God. These idols that, that the food is being offered to, they are nothing. Paul says, you are right. These, these idols are nothing. So they do have some knowledge, but then they abuse it because they will cause offense to the weaker brother. Paul will later on in chapter 10 say, how do you drink from the cup of demons and sit at the table of, and sit at the table of devils? And then sit at the Lord's table. So it's like your friend who worships the false god of Aphrodite invites you over to the temple. And you follow along because you know it's nothing. You know Aphrodite is not even a real god. It's just an idol. And Paul agrees. You're right. Aphrodite is nothing. So you start reading and it seems like Paul is saying it's okay. And then you read later on and Paul will say, wait a minute. Behind Aphrodite is a demon. So we know that there's only one god. But that doesn't mean you can just play games. There is real danger. There is spiritual darkness. So he will then say, you can't drink at the cup of, you can't drink the cup of devils and then eat uh, at the Lord's table, right? He will say, no, you can't go to these temples and partake of these meals. Yeah, buying, the food, buying food at the market is different because that is not going to the temple, for example. And then um, if you go down to chapter six, right? They also get knowledge about their bodies when he talks about sex. So look at, if you go to chapter 6, look at uh, verse 12. In the ESV, it puts it in quotations. It says, all things are lawful for me. Um, and it's in quotations because that is what the Corinthians were saying. Um, I can do all things. All things are now lawful. But Paul responds and says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So Paul is not condemning that statement because it is, in a certain sense, true. We are not under the condemning power of the law. We are free to eat all kinds of food, free to watch movies, free to dance, free to listen to music, attend concerts, whatever the case may be in our context. But I won't be brought under the power of those things as long as those things do not dominate me. They also say in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. 
So they are saying food is an appetite. So what is the big deal? If I have a stomach, there is food, therefore I eat. That is what the stomach is for. And then they continue that analogy and they say, I've got a body with sexual desires. I have sexual organs. They are temple prostitutes. Therefore, I satisfy myself. And Paul says, no, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And in this context, in, in which he talks about, it's in this context that he talks about your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And says, when you sleep with the temple prostitutes, so look at verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her, uh, one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So the Corinthians were onto something. Human beings know this. Sex is much more than just a biological act. Scripture says it. If it was, then people wouldn't be making such a big deal about it. But it's not just a biological function. It's not a small thing, right? Uh, there were also others who would say sex is everything. And the Corinthians were part of those people, right? With some, with some of the idol worship uh, that was going on, if you wanted to commune with the gods, it was through uh, sex with sex with the temple prostitutes and it's actually the same thing today right there are many people who idolize sex just look at 90 percent of film and television today of content and music just look at the billion dollar it might even be a, a trillion dollar porn industry now so for the corinthians there is an element of truth they understand that there is a link between worship and sex that is that is what paul says as well the body is for the Lord. Sex is an act of worship. And if you take it outside of marriage, it will destroy you. You sin against your own body because it is way more significant and potent than people think. The world makes it seem like, ugh, you know, it's, it's just sex. It's not a big thing. But that is not what God's word says. And really the world knows that deep down. Paul says you become one flesh and you sin against yourself. You destroy yourself. Sex is a gift for marriage as per God's design. So we need to be avoiding two extremes. One being that it is a dirty or a necessary evil for procreation because some Christians do believe that. The other is that, you know, you become vulgar and you lose the, the beauty and you no longer honor and you lose the beauty of it. And the fact that it is worship and a gift from God for a husband and a wife. That is why scripture encourages are so strongly to be pure and to not be sexually moral outside of uh, marriage when you are single. So Paul sees their knowledge and how it's messed up. And so he teaches them true wisdom and knowledge regarding their bodies. And then he deals with marriage. So this is in chapter 7. They asked him about marriage and he answers. So he says, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. And then he gives uh, more teaching on marriage. So look at verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Uh, 
So this doesn't mean that the children or the spouse of, uh, of a Christian are elect, right? But it does mean that the children and the spouse are set apart. They are holy and they are closer to salvation than an unbeliever who's married to another unbeliever is, right? Even the language of clean and unclean reminds us of Old Testament dietary laws, right? Where you were supposed to distinguish yourself. You are distinguished from uh, worldliness. But each individual has to make their own profession of faith before they receive the sign of the covenant, which is the teaching of the Bible. So a parent can't decide if a child is saved, right? It's, it's up to the actual individual to repent and confess. It's like baptism, right? No one can force you uh, to get baptized. No one can do it for you. It is your own profession of faith, which is another reason why infant baptism does not make sense, to be honest, because, yeah, that's a whole other topic. Anyways, he says in verse 25, he says, he says, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So if you are single, stay single. If you are married, stay married. But notice that Paul says in the present distress. So there must have been some persecution going on. It might have been from the government, uh, the Roman government. It could have been from the cults around them who probably hated the church and what they were teaching. You know, it might have been the temple of Aphrodite who was now losing business because the church is saying, don't, that's sexual immorality, stay away. This passage, though, is definitely not saying that if you get saved and you're single, then you should stay single. Or if you are married, then stay married. It's a wisdom thing, right? If there's a world war going on and you as a guy, you have to go fight in it, it's probably not the best time to go uh, and get married, right? Maybe wait till after the war to see if you survive and then you can, get, you can go and get married. And then in chapter 10, we get to where Paul talks about the sacraments we mentioned earlier. And two key, really amazing verses uh, we can learn a lot from in this chapter is verse 13 and verse 31. 13 and 31. So verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is common, that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So whenever you feel like I cannot carry on, I cannot do this anymore. No one knows what I go through. Read this verse. What does it say? It says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear, right? You think you can't carry on, uh, you, can't, you can't bear it. Well, God's word says he won't let you beyond, he won't let you be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. So which one is true? It always comes down to who you're going to trust. Are you going to trust God or your feelings? Are you going to listen to God's word or are you going to listen to your feelings? And it's a very important verse because it is a promise from God. So when you sin, don't say I was tempted beyond what I could bear, right? Don't say it was like too much. We have never been tempted beyond what we can bear. What we really did was we failed to find a way of escape in Christ, right? We turned away from Christ and we fell. So just bear that in mind, you know, in our, in our fight against sin, we, we always have a way of escape. We always have Christ. 
And then verse 31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Giving no, verse 32, go, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So that is mind-blowing if you think about it. Do you try to please everyone so that, you might, so that they might be saved? You know, not seeking your own advantage, but that of many, so that they may be saved. Right? That should be our mindset. That should be our attitude as Christians, as believers. Right? This is it's obviously not calling uh, us to compromise. Right? You don't, uh, Paul would not compromise on certain truths, but on non-essentials, you know, give no offense. If it doesn't matter, um, give no offense. Uh, try to please as many people so that they may be won over to Christ. Right, that's that's the principle. That's what we should take from that. And then um, go to chapter eleven on head coverings. So also a very well, not controversial, but so many different opinions and views on it. My view on this text in chapter eleven is that I see it. I see the whole head coverings thing as a cultural display that is not binding today, but the principle of it definitely is. Right. So when Jesus is washing feet. That is a cultural display of a biblical principle, which is to serve, serve one another, right? But if I come to you with a bucket and water and I start to take off your shoes, you'll probably kick me because, you know, you're going to be like, what are you doing? It's like greeting one another with a holy kiss. The principle of it is to greet each other warmly, you know, greet each other with affection, with joy. God's people should be doing that. If I walk up to someone today and I give them a kiss, I'm going to be sleeping in a cell on sexual harassment charges because we can't do that in our day and age, right? Today, instead, it might look like a handshake or a hug or a high five. And so it is with head coverings. The principle here is submission of the wife to the husband. And that is, that is timeless. Wives are to submit to their husbands. It's a biblical principle. And the focus is... What does that look like when we gather to worship? You know, how does a wife in our day show submission to her husband, right? It might be, um, it might be making sure that your wedding ring is, in, is visible, for example, or it might be just dressing modestly, right? It seems ju that during the Corinthians time in that culture, if a woman was unmarried and available, then she would have her hair uncovered. And it might have also been that the temple prostitutes would go around with their hair uncovered because, you know, they were, that's, that's how they were showing that they were temple prostitutes. And so now the Corinthians are saying, we are free, you know, un not under the law, get rid of the head coverings, let's go to church and just, you know, uh, be as we want to be. And Paul is saying, no, that cultural display of covering your head is a display of submission to your husband, right? It's, it's, it's showing uh, the order that God has established and set. And you see that in verse 3. So look at verse 3. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is a husband, and the head of Christ is God. Right? So you can see it's, it's God, and then Christ, and then the husband, and then the wife. God has ordained that order, so keep it and display it. Um, that's what Paul is saying. And then get to... Then he gets to the Lord's Supper. At that time, the rich people were turning up to church with food and drink, and they were turning communion into a proper meal, right? They even got drunk, and then they ate and finished all the food. 
So the poor working class people who are working and only finish work at five or six, they arrive to, uh, they arrive to church after that. And when they arrived, all the food was finished and all the rich people were sitting there drunk. Paul is saying, no, don't do that. Wait for one another. And then he tells them how it should be done. Right? Communion is not a fellowship meal. It's not, it's not a meal meal. Like you guys are supposed to be dining and um, here's some meat, here's some potatoes, here's a salad. No, it is communion. And in communion, we are called to, our, to examine ourselves when we do it. Right? The one sacrament, baptism, is how you enter the covenant. And communion is, is a renewal of that covenant, in a sense. Right? Communion is sober. It is a time of self-examination and it requires work. You have to think. You have to examine yourself. You have to reflect on your heart and on your walk with the Lord and think of any unconfessed sins that you need to bring before the Lord. Right? And that's why he says like, if there's anything unresolved with the brother, go first, sort it out with him and then come back and partake. Right? You have to take the bread and the juice uh, or the wine and look at it and think, what is it that I'm doing here? I'm eating and drinking by faith. You know, what are the implications of that? You know, and in our day and age, seeker-sensitive churches, they actually tend to not do communion because it's not a comfortable process and really shouldn't be, I guess. Or else what they do is they take communion and they move it to a cell group environment. But even that is unbiblical because communion is for the body. It's for the whole church, right? It's one body that should be partaking of it. So, um... Get to chapter 12. In chapter 12, we get to the spiritual gift. And he says in verse 13, For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So first of all, you cannot be saved unless you have the Holy Spirit. We talked about that when we looked at Acts. Secondly, you can't say that you are saved, but you still need the Holy Spirit. Right. People who say that are wrong. People who hold to the second baptism are wrong. That is unbiblical. Salvation is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And then he says there is a diversity of the gifts. Paul is now emphasizing that within the one body, the united body of Christ, there is diversity. All these different gifts. Gifts. So he says in verse 29, um, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And what is the, what is the answer there? It's no. right? And yet, many Pentecostal churches say, how do you know if you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit? You speak in tongues. right? They are saying that every Christian should be able to speak in tongues. Paul says, do, do all speak in tongues? No, it is completely unbiblical. Never mind that the tongues people have in mind today are not even real languages. Right? And then he says in, in, in verse 31 of chapter 12, let me show you still a more excellent way. And then you get to chapter 13 and it's all about love. But he's not saying, I want to talk about love because I've just been talking about marriage and I just want to talk about love. It's not like love per se, right? That is not really the context here. He says in verse one, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, and even with that verse, you might've heard, that argument from people saying, uh, no, we are not speaking gibberish. We are, we, we speak in the tongues of angels, right? That is how they justify it. They say it is an angelic tongue 
And so it doesn't have to make sense to us because we are speaking in the tongues of angels. But here, what is going on in verse 1, 2, and 3, Paul is using what is called hyperbole, right? Hyperbole is um, speaking in exaggerated form. He's exaggerating for effect. If I say, I am so hungry, I could eat a, a, a horse right now, I could eat a cow right now, that is physically impossible for me to do. But the point of that exaggeration is to emphasize just how hungry I am, right? If I said that to you all now, you all know that is a hyperbole, right? I'm exaggerating. So how do we know that Paul is using hyperbole um, over here in this section? Well, first he says, if I speak in the tongues of men, of men and of angels, but have not love. And then look at verse two, he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So question, if Paul had all knowledge and understood all mysteries, who would Paul be? Paul would be God, right? There is no human being who knows that, only God. Are we in agreement of that, right? Only one being knows all, uh, understands all mysteries and has all knowledge, right? So you see, he's saying, if I had uh, all knowledge of these things, if I had all, all, all uh, understanding, if I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I, if I have all these things but have not love, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if you are completely perfect in all things, in all other things, if you lack love, then it is nothing. You are nothing. And this is because the Corinthians were elevating the spiritual gifts above everything. And Paul is like, the point of these things is to serve one another. So if you are not serving one another, in other words, if you are not loving one another, then what is even the point? Better yet, you have actually missed the point, right? So that's why Paul is speaking in hyperbole there. So it's, it can't be an argument to say, no, um, we can speak in the tongues of angels. Paul is using hyperbole there. Otherwise, if we take it as Paul being able to speak in the tongues of angels, then we should take it that Paul is also like God because he understands all things and he has all knowledge, right? So then he talks more about love, right? And uh, uh, in the rest of that chapter. Um, so now when it comes to the spiritual gifts, there are, remember, there are spiritual gifts that, that continue and there's some that don't. But for both of them, for those, for the ones that continue and the ones that don't anymore, all were given for one purpose. And that is to see people saved and to build up the body, to build up the church. They were not given for personal edification because that is not loving, right? Love has to do with other people. The gifts are to build each other up. If you are to speak in tongues, it is meaningless. You help nobody unless there's, there's someone to interpret the language. So see what he says if you go to chapter 14 and you look at verse 20. So chapter 14 verse 20 he says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. He says they are behaving like children when it comes to the spiritual gift. You see how relevant this is for us? He says, guys, you are behaving like kids when it comes to the spiritual gifts. gifts because it's all about getting the attention of everyone. It's all about getting status in the church. It's all about being seen as more holy. Because they were fighting, they were fighting for the best spiritual gift to see who could make the most of it and draw attention to themselves. And Paul calls them out on it. He says, stop behaving like children. He says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And now he will tell us what is the purpose of tongues. So look at verse 21 of chapter 14. He says, in the law, it is written, 
by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign for, for not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 28. That's from Isaiah 28. When Isaiah says this, he's talking about judgment, right? The, the tongues were a sign of judgment. People of other tongues in, this, in that context were the Babylonians. So if you're in your land and you hear the tongues of other nations surrounding you, that means you're in judgment. The enemy has invaded. They're in your land and you've been surrounded. God is judging you. What should you do if you're being judged by God? You should repent. Right? Think back to Acts. In the book of Acts, they began to speak in tongues. And what did the people do? They repented. Right? The unbelievers repented because they understood what was being said by the men who were overcome by the Holy Spirit. Right? Do you know, do you know any church that is using tongues like this today right? to preach the message of the gospel? He even says, verse 23, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, Will they not say that you are out of your mind? So it, it would not even work for Gentile believers necessarily because he's talking about the nation of Israel here, right? Tongues were for Jewish unbelievers. Remember, this is the transitional period from the old covenant to the new covenant. So God is saying, so God is, uh, so God had to get the attention of his people, right? And he used miracles and he used tongues because the Jews knew Isaiah 28, there were, there were many other prophecies in the Old Testament alluding to these very things. When they start hearing, um, when they start hearing uh, tongues or when they start hearing people speaking foreign languages, then they need to repent. It's a sign for unbelievers to repent. But once the Old Covenant is completely shut and the judgment is complete, God's judgment is complete, which is in the year AD 70, then it has finished its purpose. Right. Tongues are no longer needed because we have seen their purpose as prophesied in the Old Testament. And you can see it being fulfilled in the New Testament. So they were assigned to unbelievers, unbelieving Jews. Um, okay, because we're running out of time, just going to quickly skip to the end. Um, so chapter 15 is about the resurrection. So I mentioned a bit of that earlier and what was going on there. And then chapter 16, chapter 16 is... Uh, Paul goes, uh, talks about the collection for the saints, for the believers, and then there's greetings and benediction. Okay, so um, let's leave it there for now. Are there, any, are there any questions, any thoughts that anyone would like to uh, bring up? And I see in the comments there's definitions of systematic theology words, if you do feel if you'd like to get to know hi so sorry say that last part again am i saying are you saying tongues are no longer significant in the church today, but here um, preachers they would start praying in tongues, 
Well, not sure about you, but some people also pray in tongues because they believe that um, it's your spirit communicating directly to God because we do not know what we want and our spirit dies. So I'm kind of confused by it. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm saying what, what you find um, in Corinthians is, so one thing that I'm stressing is the purpose of tongues, right? And like what have we seen with it? So the purpose of tongues is, first of all, it was assigned to unbelieving Jews, right? And second of all, in the New Testament church, they were for building other people up, right? And so even Paul says now that, you know, if you speak in tongues, then and there's no one to interpret it for you, then what is the point, you know? So tongues are very much, like Paul says, they're useless if there's no one to, to interpret them today. So today in our day and age, what are people using tongues for? I mean, like, like what, you, what you just said now, people like pray, say they pray to God and, you know, they connect with God through them. But tongues are for building up the church, right? They are not for you. They are not personal. They are not for personal edification, they are for the church. So that is an unbiblical practice. Um, and then what's the other question you said? So, yeah, they're, they're not significant today. They are not uh, necessary. They had a purpose and that has been fulfilled in, in Scripture as part of the judgment for unbelieving Jews. So I hope, I hope that makes sense. It does. Thank you. Okay. Any any thoughts on that or any other questions? Hey, can I, um, I was wondering. I, I agree with you on the whole time issue. Um, so I was wondering, how, what would you say to someone? Um, so what I would say to someone um, like that, and I, I think um, we're having a session and I kind of mentioned this, but, you know, when it comes to uh, like experiences, right, I'll always say like your, your experience is, you know, your experience. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong or it's good or whatever, right? But what is more sure is the word of God, right? Um, so what, what your God's word is more sure, more certain of the best, greatest, uh, most out of the world experience that you may have. So you, if you're going to use Romans 14 to justify it, first of all, Romans 14, ah, sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, you won't be justified by that, right? Like you, you'd actually be using um, um, that passage to support something that you already believe. It's like you're confirming your own bias. Um, and you've got it, you, I'd say you've got it wrong, right? I don't agree with that because again, going back to the purpose of tongues, it is not for personal edification at all. And Paul criticizes those who, who use it that way, who use it for themselves, um, because they have a purpose and it's been fulfilled and it's been, you know, 
um, it's been done. It's been used clearly. Um, and so even, even like touching on the subject of prayer, you know, we, we know like the teaching of scripture when it comes to prayer, I think in uh, the Lord's prayer is the, the, the best template, I guess, for, you know, what prayer is for. Prayer is for bringing supplications and things to God and for asking him to, um, you know, meet your needs, your daily needs and to further his God, his kingdom above all to further his kingdom. Right. Prayer is not necessarily it's, it's obviously fellowship and communion, fellowship with God and spending time with God. Um, but it's got a purpose and Christ outlines that in in his teaching about prayer and also like any other section that has to do with prayer in in scripture so all that to say is that you know like in your prayer life even god's word should be should be shaping that you should be saying okay how am i to pray the disciples asked jesus how are we to pray right you we are not exempt from that we probably know way less and so jesus showed us that way and so what we see as christ modeling for us we should strive to aim um so it's it's a practice that um you know uh i wouldn't encourage i wouldn't say you know in your prayer try to speak in tongues because you don't see that anywhere in scripture when it comes as being taught when it comes to um prayer in your devotional time but we see what has been taught you know we've seen examples we've seen um how people pray how people pray and what they pray for so yeah Um, okay, so there's a question from uh, Smog in the uh, comments comment section. It says, what does it mean to sin against his own body? Um, so this is referring to, what does he say? Like those who commit sexual immorality, they uh, sin against their own bodies, right? They not only sin against the Lord. So um, easiest way to answer this is to think, what what is, what is sin definitionally? Sin is basically breaking the law right it's breaking the law um god's law and so when paul says you sin against your own body it means you you're breaking even your your you're going against the law and nature of your own body right um when you commit sexual immorality so even even when when you think of romans 1 for example right because sexual immorality is the only sin that has a a an effect or we told has an effect on the body right and romans 1 clearly shows that in itself it says those who do such things speaking of you know homosexuality sexual perverseness they receive the punishment or the 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 punishment within themselves within their own bodies right so you're going against your body's own law against its own nature um you corrupting your own body it's it's bringing it's destructive to yourself it's destructive to your to your body you know um, so that's, that's kind of what it, that's basically what it means. You know, it's, it's, it's a sin with like heavy consequences against your own body. Um, and Romans, I think like Romans one details that very well. Um, so yeah, I hope that, I hope that answers your question. And then Sipira has another question. Last question, uh, for me about tongues. How would you interpret First Corinthians fourteen verse twenty-eight. So I'm just going there. First Corinthians fourteen verse twenty-eight says, um, 
I read it, but uh, but if there is one, but if if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let's to is this not to do with prophecy though? Okay, so I'm just gonna read earlier. What then, brothers? When you when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in tongue, let there be one another to interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one keep silent. Anyway, list two of yeah. So um, so how to interpret it is, I'd say same kind of the same lines with what I've been saying. It's like so Paul's point there is you know if you if there's not so going with the whole thing of you know tongue is tongues are pointless if if there's no one to to interpret them you know that that i think that um supports what i've been saying right is that there's no one to interpret it then like sit down rather speak to yourself and to god because god would be the only one who understands you right um in your speaking tongues um and so if I'm speaking more in context, okay, so he's talking about orderly worship. So chapter 14, in a sense, he's, he's kind of like now summarizing because all that's been going on in the Corinthian church has led to a lot of disorder, right? It's just chaos. It's just shouting. Uh, everyone's speaking in tongues. You it's, it's unintelligible. And even when he speaks about like prophecy, people preaching, um, you know, um, you can infer that, you know, people would be preaching and someone would stand up and be like, what does that mean? Or what's going on? And no, 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 no. And now he's just bringing order to the worship. So he's saying in, in conducting yourselves honorably guys have some order. You know, if someone is preaching, if it's prophesying, um, let two or three speak and let others weigh what has been said. Um, what has been said and, uh, what else? And yeah, so I, I think you get the point there. So yeah, I just want to say guys, we, we have gone over time. If you, feel you need to leave please don't feel bound to stay so thank you but if you want to remain behind and chat then that's fine so i hope that I hope that answers your question uh superior um so uh Danato was asking what is the list of gifts that are okay that just moved okay what is the list of gifts that are said to have ceased mostly the miraculous gifts so that's like uh, the gift of healing the gift of um tongues the gift of uh prophecy and prophecy they're being defined as pro prof uh prophet as in the old testament kind of prophet where it's it's divine revelation it's speaking on behalf of god right it's it's the for not foretelling but um yeah so that's that kind of prophecy there so it's the miraculous gift um what else is there from the list um yeah yeah i can't think of the other but it's it's mostly those so if you so the best way to think about the gift that i've seized it's those that were traditionally given to the apostles right so remember the apostles were given the ability to do um all these things to raise a dead to life to um, to heal, to, uh, you know, do all these kinds of things. They wrote the New Testament. Um, and so even in the New Testament, if you think about it, you hardly ever see anyone but the disciples doing miraculous things. Um, so those are the things that are, that are, that are said to have ceased. Um, okay. And then Buddy says, 
G20, building up, building up yourselves on your most holy, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Doesn't this imply that speaking in tongues stimulates faith and helps us learn how to trust God more fully? For example, faith must be exercised to speak in tongues because the Holy Spirit specifically directs the words we speak. Not meaning, not meaning to come again. No, no, no. Like you're not coming. It's, it's, it's a, a good question. Good question. So doesn't this imply that? So pulling up yourself on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Um, yeah. So doesn't that imply? So first, I, I think. Uh, okay, Dex has provided a link there, but uh, if I, I'm going to give my question, I mean my answer. So I'd say, what does um, building up yourself in your mouth, what does praying in the Holy Ghost mean, praying in the Spirit? Because we've seen so many, many statements saying, you know, we should do this in the Spirit. Last week, we were talking about um, walking in the Spirit, right, when it comes to sin, right? Uh, what does walking in the Spirit look like? You know, um, so um, I hear you. I hear what you're saying, but like, uh, I think we can. The the danger there is just to kind of like over spiritualize something that is is. Um, I don't say like because it's spiritual, but like we like to put maybe like a mask or a look on what certain things in the faith look like, right? So it's like if I'm walking in the spirit. As we were looking at Romans last week, you know, does it look like, you know, like oh, I've just got this glow around me or anything like that. But when you when you when you read what like what Paul says about that, it's 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 walking in such a way that, you know, you're fighting sin. You're not you're not giving into sin. You are uh, trusting in the Lord to keep you from sin. You're pursuing holiness, etc., etc. And it might not look, you know, um, like spiritual, so Dexter's put a quote, I think, yeah, from there. He says, therefore, praying in the Spirit should be understood as praying in the power of the Spirit by the leading of the Spirit and according to His will, not as praying in tongues. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, I can't remember the book of Jude very well, but I think even contextually when you read that and you take that from Jude, um, you, yeah, I think you wouldn't really get it uh, much of a, I don't know, like, uh, you know, praying in tongues kind of thing from that. So, yeah. Doesn't that imply that? So, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, it doesn't. So, Warren is saying it doesn't seem to be a call to some form of ecstatic prayer. Yeah. Um, and it goes with the rest of the teaching to do anything in the spirit. I mean, if we do something in the spirit, we're doing it in faith, right? We're doing it relying on Christ, right? Um, so... Um, yeah, oh, that, that uh, gives you like some perspective, Bali. Are there, are there any other questions, guys, or any thoughts, or even disagreements? Because I, I expected more disagreements, to be honest. Bali says it does. Okay. Um, 